Gender issues are cross-cutting and increasingly becoming a focus in many sectors. This panel at the 2018 Pacific Update explored themes of gender and social analysis. Presentations on child protection systems in the Pacific, gender and politics in Tonga, and menstrual hygiene in Fiji were followed by further discussion of gender issues, led by panel chair Nalini Singh, executive director of the Fiji Women's Rights Movement. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the um, first round of sessions for the um, Pacific Update 2018 conference. And uh, just to check in, you're in the right room. This is panel 1B on gender and social analysis. Yes, everyone's in the right room? Okay. So uh, by way of introduction, my name is Nalini Singh. I am the executive director for the Fiji Women's Rights Movement. Um, and um, I'm sure some of you would have heard of uh, the work that we do. Um, it's strongly based around um, uh, eliminating discrimination against women and, um, and enhancing gender equality um, for women in Fiji. Um, and um, FWRM's definition of gender is wider than just um, you know, men and women. Um, we believe in recognizing the diversity and the, fluid, fluid, uh, the fluidness in terms of um, uh, identification with gender. And um, we are continuously learning, uh, you know, um, in terms of understanding what the stereotypes and discrimination are and working towards um, eliminating that and ensuring, as our logo says, um, to balance the scales. Um, so with this particular um, panel, uh, it's um, quite apt that I've been asked to chair it, uh, which is on gender and social an analysis. And um, uh, I think you're all well versed in terms of um, the intersecting and the uh, interlinking um, nature of um, how social analysis in terms of um, looking at issues through a gender lens uh, needs to be. Um, we don't live singular lives. No one lives singular lives. And um, so... In, in well, at least the work that we do, we ensure that we are looking at the interlinkages and um, in terms of issues and intersectionalities in terms of the various um, uh, you know roles we play, the various hats we have on um, as women and, and people of all genders. So, um, so today's session is, is, is you know the three papers being presented is um, uh, you know sort of cut across the spectrum in terms of looking at uh, issues around gender and uh, so social analysis from um, uh, looking, uh, focusing on children and looking at a rights-based approach in terms of violence against women um, and also looking at um, processes around uh, strengthening democratization and enhancing accountability um, with CEDAW, um, you know, and in Tonga and to looking at um, uh, breaking down stereotypes and issues around women and, and girls' reproductive rights um, and health. So um, in terms of the spectrum of issues and uh, analysis, um, we are cutting across a very broad uh, range. So it was very interesting to see, um, and um, I hope that uh, you all will be enlightened by what is being presented from different perspectives um, in terms of um, uh, you know, the various sectoral groups um, being uh, represented, uh, different countries, and of course, different contexts. So first, the ground rules for us. 
So each presenter, since we have um, an hour and a half, um, we have three presentations. Each presenter will have up to 20 minutes to present. And um, you will be given a uh, warning. The first warning is going to be at um, uh, just before three minutes um, is up. And you'll hear a beat from the lali. That's your um, warning. And at full time, there'll be two beats. And that means you have to stop. Um, so, and 20 minutes is plenty, I think, in terms of uh, presenting your issues. So, um, after all the three presentations, we will take on some questions that you'll have. Okay, so let's begin. Um, let me introduce to you the first presenter, uh, Shelley Casey, and she is um, uh, UNICEF's child protection expert, and she is going to be presenting um, uh, uh, on the issue that's up on the screen uh, around child protection systems in the Pacific and opportunities and challenges of intersection with responses to violence against women. And this is a co-authored uh, presentation uh, and paper with um, uh, two of our other colleagues who will be able to respond to any questions right at the end um, if there are any towards them. So Shelley, please join me and you have 20 minutes. Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'll jump straight into um, the presentation. Um, I'm here to talk to you this morning about the intersection and differentiations between responding to violence against women and violence against children. Um, globally, um, and specifically here in the Pacific, there is a growing body of evidence um, about the um, impact of family violence on children and the intersection between violence um, against gender-based violence and violence against children. Um, in this region, one of the seminal publications was a 2015 report by UNICEF and UNFPA, which are called Harmful Connections, um, which is available on the UNICEF Pacific website. Um, and it collated available information from the um, health and safety studies that were the gender-based violence studies that were done um, across the Pacific in the last five years. What the data, available data is showing us is that women and children growing up in the Pacific are experiencing some of the highest rates of family violence in the world. Um, Across the um, 11 Pacific countries where the family health and safety studies were conducted, um, the, rate, the prevalence rate for lifetime experience of physical or sexual abuse against women uh, ranges between 45 to 68% um, in each country. And that's against the global average, significantly higher than the global average of just 30%. We know from the available data that violence against children in the Pacific is most often perpetrated by those entrusted with their care and protection. So family members um, or other people, parents, family members, others living in their household, um, as well as teachers. We also know from the evidence that even where children, um, who, even where children are not direct victims of family violence themselves, um, their exposure to uh, higher, high levels of violence between the adults and their households has a significant negative impact. Um, and in particular, impacting on children's emotional well-being um, 
and long-term development as evidenced by, uh, for example, increased rates of nightmares, increasing displays of aggressive behavior, uh, particularly in boys, and repeating years of school or dropping out of school. Um, for example, in, the, in both Fiji and Kiribati, the studies uh, found that mothers who were subjected to intimate partner violence um, were um, twice as likely to report that uh, their children either um, missed um, or dropped out of school um, or were held back a year. This takes us into the very important issue of the intersection between um, violence against um, children and violence against women and how we tackle that um, from a programming perspective. One of the key um, intersections highlighted in a lot of the literature is the fact that violence against women and violence against children share uh, a number of common um, risk factors. So violence against children um, and violence against women tends to be more prevalent in households that are experiencing family conflict, uh, where there's been family breakdown, um, where there is a culture of male dominance within the household, um, as well factors such as economic stress um, and the breakdown of extended family networks as a result of urbanization, migration, um, and, and um, climate change, yeah, which has disrupted traditional extended family supports um, across the Pacific. And then finally, drug and alcohol as abuse as well. So households with where members um, are, are um, using drugs or have significant alcohol problems also show significantly higher rates of abuse against both women and children living in that household. <coughs> The studies have also um, flagged that vi both violence against children and violence against children are driven by very similar um, underlying social norms. Um, and in particular, we see uh, a number of studies flagging, for example, the normalization of violence as a means of resolving disputes, um, the justification of physical violence as an acceptable means of disciplining both women and children, uh, the low status of women and girls, male sexual entitlement, and then the secrecy around violence against women and children. Uh, the perception that um, violence in the home is a family matter, not to be discussed outside the home, um, as well as a, um, taboos around speaking openly about sex and sexual abuse. <clears throat> The studies also highlight the, that co-occurrence is common. So in um, the, that child maltreatment and intimate partner violence um, often co-occur within a single household. Um, and the, the, in particular, the, um, say the, um, the health and family safety sur surveys um, strongly highlighted the fact that the safety and well-being of children is very closely linked to the safety and well-being of their mothers. Um, in Solomon Islands, for example, 36% um, of women who reported experiencing interpersonal violence reported that their children also were also being abused. Um, and that's as compared to only 11, so over a third of women who were themselves abused reported their children were being abused. 
That's as compared to only 10% of women who weren't abused, indicating that their child was experiencing abuse in the household. Finally, the studies have highlighted the intergener intergenerational impact um, of abuse. Um, and in particular, we see that women who report physical or sexual abuse um, in childhood are much more likely to experience interpartner, uh, intimate partner violence um, as an adult. Um, in addition, men who experience childhood abuse or uh, maltreatment are much more likely to be violent in their interpersonal relationships when they grow older, so as, as adults. So this is a strong indication that tra tackling child maltreatment is an important long-term strategy for um, reducing family violence because we're tackling the vulnerability of both um, of women and preventing them from falling into that cycle of abuse and also um, addressing early indicators, you know, the early risks of men becoming violent um, in their adult lives. Given all of these intersections, there's been a lot of global dialogue about the importance of ensuring close collaboration and intersection where necessary between child protection systems, so the response to children who are experiencing maltreatment, um, and um, other adults in the in the and violence against women and other adults in the home who are experiencing violence. Um, and I think this need for close collaboration is is particularly key um, in the Pacific countries where um, the number of service providers, you know, addressing the needs of women and children tends to be quite limited, um, where there are significant resource constraints, and where the reach of government services um, is challenged by, you know, issues of geography um, and finances. However, what's also coming out strongly from um, the experience in this, in this region and globally is that child protections can't simply be tacked on to violence against women initiatives. So whilst we've had a strong movement to improve the response to violence against women, um, with, we also have to maintain um, a specific focus on um, investing in strengthening national child protection systems. So we acknowledge the intersections, but also recognize the need for a specialized approach to dealing with children's issues. There are a number of um, rationales that explain the need for this, um, this dedicated and specialized approach to child protection. One, of course, is the um, UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, which um, articulates an, the added responsibility on governments to protect children and provide alternative care. Um, with violence against women's initiatives, quite rightly, are generally based on women's agency, um, providing services to women, but giving them choices. Yeah. So all services are provided on a voluntary basis, um, and women opt in or opt out of support to deal with, the their, with their family violence experiences. Where children are concerned, however, the state has an added responsibility to protect the most vulnerable. Um, and that means in particular stepping in to protect children who cannot, um, don't have a voice uh, to seek the help that they need, um, including stepping in where necessary 
in the child's best interest, even if the parents um, or the child don't want help. Um, with adolescent girls, we do recognize that they, you know, that, you know, they have an evolving capacity and their agency does increase the older they get. Uh, but nonetheless, a teenage girl um, who's, who's experienced sexual abuse, for example, um, requires much more intensive case management uh, and much more intensive interventions than an adult. So whilst the opinions and views of a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old would be given more weight than a 3-year-old or 4-year-old, uh, there still needs to be that state authority making decisions in the best interest of that girl um, because she doesn't yet have the full maturity of an adult um, to make decisions that are best for her. And we see this increasingly reflected in recent years in the legal frameworks of a number of countries in the Pacific region, uh, which have delegated through their child protection laws um, a statutory or mandated child protection authority who can intervene and take these decisions where necessary. Um, and particularly Cook Islands, Fiji, Kiribati, Nauru, um, Aramai and Solomon Islands have now delegated their child welfare authority um, to play this very important role. Another key reason for a separate approach to dealing with children's issues is the fact that child protection systems also need to go beyond um, just family violence. So violence against women or interpersonal uh, violence responses across the Pacific tend to focus on intimate partner violence, um, so violence within the home, um, and um, um, adults, experience, adults and, and teenage girls experiencing sexual violence. Um, the focus is very much on women and girls. When we come to the child protection system, um, the focus needs to be more holistically on um, girls and boys, um, recognizing the, spe the special protection risk uh, that special protection risks that boys face, and as well the types of issues it needs to deal with go beyond just violence. Um, so, for example, the system needs to be flexible enough to deal with issues of child neglect. Uh, to, to deal with abandoned children, um, street children or children who are, you know, selling things um, on the streets, um, other forms of exploitive child labor, as well as the core sort of physical, sexual, and emo emotional abuse cases. And the responses that you would have to, you know, a child who's been orphaned or ab abandoned um, are very different than the response process you would need to deal with an adult woman who is being uh, beaten by her husband. Within that, there are some intersecting categories. So both sect, sect, uh, systems need to collaborate closely, um, for example, in dealing with children who are witnessing or exposed to the violence between adult members of their household. Uh, we also have a number of cases um, where both the child and the mother are experiencing abuse. Um, cases where an adolescent um, is abused of intimate partner violence, against, often against another adolescent. Um, or adolescents um, who are abused um, by their own um, intimate partner, so boyfriend, girlfriends, in those uh, offenses in those teenage years. Another key differentiation is that the procedures for dealing with child protection <coughs> cases tend to be quite different. 
Um, whilst often many of the same service providers are involved in supporting an adult victim of intimate partner violence and a child who is at risk or in need of protection, the pathway you know, of, of the client is very different in children's cases than it is um, in adult cases. So the common GBV um, or violence against women, women referral pathway allows a woman, regardless of a woman's entry point into the system, um, she's provided options and about the services that are available to her um, and sort of makes her own way yeah, from sometimes with accompaniment through the different service providers depending on her, her particular choice um, and what services she wishes to receive. In child protection cases, however, we there's a need for a much stronger central case management function, um, most commonly performed by the um, social welfare officer or child protection officer. Um, so someone needs to be at the core, the hub uh, of all interventions to conduct, uh, to receive all of those reports, to conduct a comprehensive assessment of the child, and to map out a detailed care plan for that child, flagging what help they might need, um, linking the child up with other care, care providers, um, and following up and monitoring to ensure that the child gets the holistic care that they need. The types of services and the service providers on the, in child protection systems also tend to be a bit broader. <coughs> um, Interpartner violence responses tend to focus predominantly on the adult survivor, um, whereas in children's cases there tends to be more focus um, on not just the child, but also the child's parents and extended family members. And that includes things, for example, like family counseling, um, guidance and supervision for parents, um, parenting skills or other initiatives to address the underlying problems and strengthen the parent's <coughs> capacity um, to look after the child. Another key um, reason for a separate and distinct approach to dealing with children's cases is that children often, uh, who've experienced violence within their homes often need um, much more long-term solutions than an adult survivor. Um, the standard violence against women referral pathway is designed um, to basically intervene and support an adult survivor towards independent living. So, and interventions tend to be reasonably temporary in terms of you know, uh, shelter, um, counseling, medical support, and then assistance for them should they choose to do so, to leave their abusive situation and establish themselves independently. Um, with children, however, child protection interventions um, need to look at ensuring the child is safe and well cared for until they turn 18. Um, and in particular, children who are removed from their homes because of violence or abuse um, require a long-term alternative care option and not just temporary or short-term shelter. For this reason, child protection systems do tend to place much more emphasis on family preservation, um, working with the parents or other extended family members to find a safe long-term option for a child uh, within, wherever possible, within the family um, rather than removing a child um, to alternative care because we're looking at the long-term needs of that child. 
most shelters, um, domestic violence shelters or temporary care will um, you know, take in women for 14 to 21 days. Um, whereas a child who's not safe to go home may need help for years or an alternative arrangement for years until they're able to, um, to be independent. And finally, there's also a growing recognition that dealing with children's cases also requires a unique skill set. Um, we know that, and particularly in the Pacific, often the, service, the same service providers are supporting both adult survivors of violence and also children in need of protection. Um, and there are some skills and sen sensitivities that apply equally to both of those categories. Um, but children's cases and dealing with vulnerable children and dealing with the sensitivities of interacting with families um, and finding viable long-term solutions for children does require um, different procedures and approaches and a slightly different skill set. Um, so this, that can't be lost sort of in the move to, to, to intersect um, in handling these two different categories. We'll just run through quickly of um, the approach that UNICEF and DFAT is taking to address this issue of intersection um, and um, differentiation between violence against women um, and violence and child protection. So UNICEF's focus in the Pacific has been on working with governments um, to continue investment on strengthening um, national child protection systems. Uh, and that in particular has involved um, um, designing child protection systems that are feasible and appropriate in the national to the national context and culture, um, that recognize you know the available resources, um, both including the positive resource of extended families and communities, and building on those community caring practices and informal support networks, um, which have been under threat in recent years. A significant focus has also been on reinforcing the central role of social welfare um, in coordinating services for children and families and playing that nucleus role yeah. in the referral pathway. <laughs> um, a key focus has been on looking at ways to improve linkages between the formal and informal or community mechanisms for dealing with child concerns about children's well-being and protection. Um, this is recognizing that formal government services across the Pacific tends to have fairly limited reach. Um, and so the systems that are designed for the <coughs> Pacific need to be very different than those used um, in other countries. Um, recognizing the important role, important leadership role that um, traditional community leaders play um, and the potential for um, informal and community support networks, um, provided that you know, some challenging practices that exist at the community levels can be overcome. Um, significant focus has also been on uh, prevention and early intervention rather than just response. And that's included look, um, working with um, communities to strengthen the capacity of parents um, and community leaders uh, to protect for to protect children and to address social norms that are harmful to children, um, it's included a significant focus on parenting skills and parenting education, um, school-based violence uh, initiatives, um, 
and also looking for opportunities to collaborate better with health workers and in particular health outreach workers who are interacting with um, uh, children and mothers from the early stages of life. Drawing on global lessons learned, emphasis has also been placed on family-based, or on family preservation and trying to find family-based solutions wherever possible. And in particular, drawing on the active involvement of parents, extended family members, and community leaders in addressing problems. Um, and that's in recognition of the fact that, you know, removal of a child um, is uh, removing a child from their family and community is a significant step and one that should be avoided wherever possible uh, because the alternatives for the long-term care of that child are, are often quite limited. So wherever possible where there are um, su supportive and safe members of the family, um, they're, they're um, actively engaged in trying to find an appropriate safe solution for the child. Emphasis has primarily been, is, is primarily being placed on looking at family-based forms of alternative care for children and resisting um, the, the establishment of children's homes or shelters uh, for children. Can I have one more minute? Okay, thank you. In addition to these targeted, targeted efforts on... Um, Child Protection Systems Building, UNICEF and DFAT are also looking at opportunities to strengthen collaboration with uh, violence against women initiatives across the region. And this has included um, better integration of efforts to address social norms, so those, those community targeted efforts at um, promoting violence-free families, addressing alcohol addiction, um, and addressing some of those broader social norms that underlie violence. We're also looking at opportunities to strengthen collaboration in those intersection cases where both women and children experience abuse to ensure that safety planning for mothers also takes into account uh, the safety planning for their children. Okay, please join me in thanking uh, Shelley uh, and Bridget from UNICEF and Nilesh from the Australian High Commission for preparing such a comprehensive uh, presentation and Shelley for uh, making the presentation. Um, I'm sure um, these uh, issues and facts and um, pathways she's presented, we are aware of some of those. But speaking of startling facts, so after Barham last year did a research on access to justice for for women, um, looking at three key laws, uh, family law, domestic violence, and the crimes uh, law, in particular, uh, the sexual assault and rape um, laws. And we have found some really startling facts mm -hmm. that resonate with what you've said. Mm -hmm. And um, just a few of those, like we, in our women's survey, we, we talked to a cohort of women that had tried to access justice through the formal justice sector, and we found that it takes them more than two years to actually seek help from the formal justice sector. So from the time of violence started to when they actually go into the police or legal aid to seek help, it takes them more than two years, so more than 800 days. And within those 800 days, this, the cycle of violence continues for her and her family, her, her children involved. Um, and um, on, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, then ongoing analysis at the moment is revealing even startling facts where we see that the youngest um, 
Victim survivor in 2016 in Fiji of sexual assault and rape was one year old, and last year it was nine months old. So these kind of um, strategies and efforts uh, need to be approached in a way in which we one address those issues and then look at on, on the on the avenue of what is wrong in terms of why that type of violence is occurring. So once again, thank you very much. Very important presentation. Save your questions till later. So now we move on to the next um, uh, presentation, and um, this is in regards to gender and politics, and we are looking at the Pacific Leadership Program, NCDO in Tonga, um, and uh, to present um, uh, uh, Mariani Rokotuimbao, who is an independent uh, consultant, and Chris Roche, who is from the La Trobe University. So uh, you have 20 minutes, and maybe the timekeepers, please. Be a bit louder with your three-minute warning <laughs> and your time's up warning because I we could not yeah, hear right that three here. minutes. <laughs> yeah. So would you like to come join yeah. here, <laughs> or you want to sit there? You come here. Okay. All right. So we'll bring up the presentation. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Chris Roach from La Trobe University. I'm the warm-up guy. I'll hand over to the star of the show uh, shortly. Um, and just to say, we're presenting this on behalf of a much larger research team, um, just to acknowledge the work that they've all put in. Um, so this piece of work uh, was done under the auspices of a program called the Developmental Leadership Program, which is a program uh, which looks at the role of individual and collective leadership in promoting sustainable development. It's been going for about 10 years, a range of research, and we're talking about one particular aspect of that research, which is um, a gender and politics uh, in practice research program. And, um, you know, you're in a James Bond type room, but the technology... I can do that. that just let me know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll do that, yeah. So, um, prizes for recognising the second person on the left um, in that slide. <laughs> hey, well done. Um, just a background here, in, in a meeting in Bangkok between people working on governance issues, policy reform issues, and gender specialists came together to explore the interactions between those two things, with a recognition that a lot of governance programs and law and justice programs are actually gender blind. Um, and the irony that programs that deal with power and politics don't address issues of gendered power and politics was, was plain to see. Um, and so DFAT uh, commissioned <coughs> that we undertook to explore how and why that was occurring and what examples of good practice were there of programs that actually managed to deal with the formal political realm, but also the informal political realm within which gender relations is constituted. Um, and so that's the piece of work we do, and um, I'll talk about some of the findings from that, but we'll talk about one of the case studies we worked on um, that was part of the 14 case studies, and Mariani will take us away. Okay. Um, thank you, Chris. So, um, a bit of a, a background on this. Let's talk about that. Okay. Um, the program I used to work for, Pacific Leadership Program, or PLP for short, 
began the work in Tonga around 2009. And at that time, Tonga was going through a lot of pro a change process politically. Uh, they've had a review in their laws and uh, my friend Mele sitting at the back there. Yeah, uh, so she's studying at ANU and also will be talking later this week about this whole TIDO uh, process. But uh, um, at that time when PLP began its work in Tonga, we recognized that yes, Tonga is a kingdom and they pride themselves in being the only kingdom in this side of the world. So it's quite hierarchical. Uh, the church has a lot of power and influence in, in Tonga. Um, the king still holds a lot of authority, formal and informal authority in Tonga. Um, and in 2010, they had their first uh, democratic elections. So the program that I worked for was working in Tonga at that time when all of this was going on. And 2014, they had another change in the political front where they had the first cabinet that had 99% commoners. And so you can understand the dynamics that's at play in Tonga at that time. Um, and there was only one lord who was the minister for lands, only because that's part of the legislation, is that so? Right. So all of these was happening, and he was ELP trying to look for an opportunity to support women in leadership. We developed uh, partnerships with people, uh, leaders in the private sector, in the civil society, in the church, in the youth organizations, and we were also working with a lot of really strong and dynamic women. And most of you know some of these incredible women. They've been working in this space for decades, even before POP came into the picture. In 2014, as, as Chris said, we're exploring how we can um, support women working together. People call it coalitions these days. So with the assumption that change happen, uh, happens a bit more rapidly if we work together. And that, and that uh, you know, fitted in well with the, the culture and the structure in, in the, in the Tongan society. But strangely enough, these women, they prefer to work alone. <clears throat> uh, because they're competing for the same bucket of funding, so they prefer to just do their own bits. Until, um, until that happened, in May 2015, there was um, a march in Tonga against the ratification of CEDO. So government announced that it will ratify CEDO, and then you had thousands of people marching against the ratification of CEDO. Um, so the Tonga Catholic Women's League, who were initially strong advocates of CEDO, they took the streets and marched with churches and nobles and thousands and thousands of people. And then we were left with the 12 strong women that I talked about earlier, who preferred to work alone, and now recognizing that they will need to come together. Um, so for an outside program, we saw that as an opportunity to engage. So we went back to them and said, um, are you okay if we sort of work together now? And they're like, yeah, I think so, because it's a thousand against a twelve. And so, um, the next slide. Yeah, so just a couple of slides. Um, yeah, so they decided to come together. Um, and since then, there's been a lot of work that they've continued to do. Um, it, it's interesting that that helped them build 
trust and recognize that supporting women in leadership and advancing women's issues, you'll need to work together. Um, and they've um, managed to support other women. This is still very much in process. We've learned a lot of lessons and I'll talk about it in the next couple of slides. But <coughs> the beautiful thing is that they've recognized um, that they need to identify their own way of working, uh, identify that there are strengths within them, and if they pull that together, they're able to lead and do this on their own. You don't actually need outsiders to come and tell them what to do. And there's no training program that uh, we develop here in Suva or from where else that'll come and help them sort their issues out. They, they have the answers there, and it's about them mobilizing and recognizing and using um, locally owned and locally led um, approaches that they are familiar with, they understand the context, and it's only for us, I guess, as outsiders to recognize where these opportunities, <coughs> opportunities are and how do we tailor support to help them get to that point. Um, so very quickly, we've learned a lot of lessons here, just a couple of things that we've, we wanted to share with you, the importance of being connected to the right people, uh, recognizing the opportunity to engage. Sometimes the timing is not correct. Um, that March was the opportune time for us to engage because that was when we, they, I mean, we knew that they needed someone to stand with them. And the partner stands with you through thick and thin. They don't run away when everybody's um, marching <coughs> against the issues that you're passionate about. And we had to really manage that well because we were a DFAT-funded program and we had to make sure that, you know, you're balancing the dynamics that uh, it's not being driven and led by DFAT or by an outside program. It's actually their issue and we're just providing the right type of support. So it's actually about creating space for them to, to lead and do this. The um, <clears throat> framing of information is important. Um, at that time, the media was really doing a lot of campaign <coughs> against the 12 women that I've been talking about. They were called children of the devil. <laughs> and even their kids were bullied in school, so it's really sensitive. And these are the things that we need to, to really be careful about when we are supporting these types of issues. Um, timing is critical. We are always challenged by um, our donors saying, you know, you only have three years to do this. We can't finish all this in three years, so what is the most appropriate thing to do and when is the right time? And at that time for us, it's just about bringing them together, creating a space for them to come in and just reflect and think about how do we do this together? How do we move strategically? They have enough political capital, they can do it, but it's just about taking a step back. And in the line of work that we do, it's, it's, we call it getting on the balcony. So doing a bit of reflection, not jumping off the balcony, but just getting on the balcony, doing a bit more thinking. Um, next. So what has happened since government still hasn't ratified CEDAW? We know last year they've um, they dissolved government in November. So again, there's still a lot of changes. It's still a little bit unstable, but you know we've got to choose what we need to do when. CEDAW might not be the most important thing right now for the government of Dollar, which is okay. That doesn't mean that we stop, it just means that we need to focus on other things. Um, interestingly enough, like in the, in the last election, 2017, so a little bit of analysis there, so the elections in 2014, 6% of the population voted women, 
2017, yay, double, 14% of people have voted for women. So yes, slowly starting to recognize that yes, women can play a role in the leadership. Um, we have other interested women, women coming, wanting to join the coalition, and then you have that dynamic, okay, these are the people that marched against Ido, they now be wanting to come and join our group. How do we balance that? So that's an ongoing conversation. And it's also about building the trust that people in the coalition can actually say, yes, you can come in. Um, we're at that stage right now with the coalition, they, they know that they need other women to join them, but um, how do you manage that? Um, so it's about working strategically, thinking and working politically with our, which our expert Chris will talk about in a minute. Um, and uh, they've also been like accompanying women in the local government. So last year recorded the first district officer and the first woman and the first woman town officer. That's a plus. And that's the, these women that I've been talking about, they've been like accompanying um, women in the local government. So maybe national is 500 steps away, we can just start with the local government. Um, three key points, I think it's about context is essential, is important, I think we all know that. We need to understand the political dynamics, who we should be working with, what is a taboo, what are the, where are the sensitive areas, you know. Um, I had to be, you know, Every Sunday morning when I'm in Tonga, I just show up at the Free Wesleyan Church of Tonga. I'm sitting there and they're talking in Tonga. I don't understand anything. <laughs> but at the end of the service, I'll go and say hello to Reverend Javier. Just so he knows I'm in church on the Sunday. But it, it's building that sort of trust and understanding the context. You know that you need to be connecting with the right, the right people. Um, um, uh, tailored, tailored support. You know, maybe it's training, maybe it's just creating a space, maybe it's something else. But we've got to be flexible and we need to think about when and how do we deliver the appropriate uh, support. Um, at this time, we've, we've learned that the coalition needs a bit of structure. Um, it cannot be too rigid, but it probably needs, you know, guiding principles just to help balance the dynamics as well within the coalition. And lastly, mm, uh, supporting coalitions is important. They can, can really help and move things uh, rather than, you know, individuals trying to work and, and make a change and influence policies. Um, what we found is that the coalition work <coughs> has really helped make progress in this area. And um, the importance of having uh, a donor that is also you know, flexible, and that's a contested thing that we need to negotiate as well, because we need, still need to be accountable, and we also understand that they have a system, but it, how do you balance that to ensure that there's still that element of flexibility to help support these types of complex issues? I'll end there, Chris. Just to um, conclude then, so we looked at three very large pieces of research, um, and then these 14 case studies a literature review of the rest of it. And we try to pull out some of the key things that seem similar across these very different programs from Africa, Asia, and the Pacific, um, in terms of what seems to have worked in programs that seem to bring polit a political understanding and gender together well. And the first, and you've heard it um, from Mariani very clearly, is about supporting inclusive local leadership, and not just formal 
leadership informal in the public realm, but local leadership, uh, hidden leadership, <coughs> informal leadership. Um, and identifying that early in any process and not killing it with kindness. Um, there, there seems to be a very a lot of examples uh, we've come across of, of good networks and coalitions being turned into bad organizations when money is put on the table. Um, the second thing, and, and, and that local leaders are acutely aware of their political possibilities, the norms and barriers and obstacles they face. Outsiders cannot have that understanding. And so it's critically important that, that in all of these cases, inclusive local leadership was supported. Um, the second thing is that those groups were also doing very strong political and gender analysis, but maybe not in the ways that, um, that a, a political economy specialist would do from the outside. But these people didn't bring in political economy analysts or gender analysts to do the an analysis, which then ends up as Appendix 3 on a very big design report, mm. they facilitated a process whereby those groups were undertaking that particular analysis together, integrating a gendered understanding of analysis in very, very com complete and complex ways. And so the, what is the role then of the outsider is maybe there is a role for flexible uh, support and facilitation, but it's not to do the political or gender analysis on behalf of local actors. Um, in terms of working politically, um, if you like, the third point here, a lot of this was about helping coalitions develop their own agendas, negotiate differences between them, and help create safe spaces for them to do that, um, and negotiating values and interests between different um, coalition members. A bit what Marianne was also describing is, is the challenge now. Um, women's organisations have necessarily fought and worked politically for decades. The idea that we, can't, we somehow need to train women's organisations to think work politically is kind of slightly insane. Um, but there is a lot that can be learned by those working in other spaces about how that happens. The fourth area is about planning for uncertainty. These processes really are not predictable in advance. Um, the backlash cannot be predicted. It's often one step forward, two steps back. And how do one, does one support those processes through project designs, monitoring and evaluation that allows for their, that adaptation? Um, and for flexible funding that allows, when there is an opportunity, a critical juncture, how, how can funds be mobilised quickly to seize that moment? Um, and that also means having monitoring and evaluation processes that are simple enough for local people to understand. I mean, I, I cannot believe how complex monitoring evaluation frameworks become. I don't think anybody understands them anymore. Um, but this, the, these programs simplified them down to some very basic questions um, and provided space for reflection and re-strategizing on a regular basis. But they also looked at the questions of how social norms were changing and how power relations were changing between men and women, which is, of course, what this is all about. And we're looking at imaginative ways of doing that. And finally, and perhaps most interestingly, is the, the fifth one, this arrow from the outside. If those processes are locally determined and locally driven, what is then the role for well-meaning external actors who want to support this kind of stuff? And what we found in all of these cases, there's a number of very practical things that they did. One, they changed their HR policies. So they were recruiting more on the basis of values, motivations, and interests, as much as technical skills, if not more than technical skills, which they reckoned 
could be picked up. Um, they changed contracting models so that discretionary funds were available and could be mobilized quickly. Um, they provided money for space uh, for learning and reflection. And we're aware that how money can distort incentives. A lot of the, all of these programs drove from intrinsic motivations, not extrinsic, not the money. And they often took the money off the table if that was becoming a problem. And in the end, they were decentralizing and empowering frontline staff and their political and judgment about what to support. And it's, it's very interesting that since we completed this, uh, <coughs> Dan written a new book on, it's called Navigation by Judgment, why when top-down management in the A system doesn't work, and he's looked at 14,000 projects around the world and has shown pretty conclusively that those programs that are in co complex environments, working on complex issues, where, where frontline staff have discretion, they actually achieve better results. Um, so I think there's a, a kind of broader finding there. And finally, the trust that was built up between donor, the people in the donor agencies and the local implementers and the rest of it was very strong, and strong enough for then the local uh, implementers to push back when necessary in order to not uh, accept demands from donors, which they felt would undermine the process. But that, that needs a degree of trust to be built up over time, relationships to be built up. And that's it. <laughs> that's it? Okay. Okay, thank you so much. Um, please join me in thanking um, Mariani and uh, Chris for an absolutely brilliant presentation that um, looked at um, sharing, um, you know, of course, the case study of uh, Tonga and sharing the lessons from the experiences, which is, I think, very important um, and something that does take uh, time and needs um, met meticulous analysis. Um, Gender and politics and CEDAW, and, and I think we are all aware the Pacific has the lowest number of women in parliaments, um, and um, there are some parliaments that don't even have any women. Um, so there's a long way for, I think, all of us in the region around this issue. Okay, so let's move in uh, to our third and final presentation, um, an, an issue that is um, uh, very close to my heart, as um, you know, I have a lot of interest and experience in working in sexual and reproductive health and rights. So let's welcome um, Michael Sami to speak about menstrual hygiene, the last taboo, the Fiji situation. Yes, Michael, please come up here. Thank you and good morning everyone. Mm -hmm. I'll try and be as brief as possible. Um, you have 20 minutes and more. Yeah, I have 20 minutes, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, just before uh, I start, um, as I was sitting there preparing for my presentation, someone came up to me and said, um, you're very brave, uh, you, you're a man and talking about menstrual hygiene. Um, but uh, you'll be amazed uh, from the research that we've done how much involved and engaged men are in the in, in menstrual hygiene, especially in the Fiji context. And I can relate to that. I have four older sisters. Um, more coming soon. Thank you. 
I'll just do it. Yeah. Okay, just to acknowledge that um, I'm presenting on behalf of Dr. Lisa Natoli uh, from the Bennett Institute, and uh, we have other partners, and uh, just to acknowledge our development partners, um, and also uh, WaterAid and IWDA. Thank you. Just a bit of uh, background. Uh, really, um, the overarching um, um, aim of this would be really looking at uh, managing menstruation hygienically and uh, effectively with uh, dignity. And uh, it, it can be challenging in the Pacific eh? uh, and for girls and women in uh, low and middle income countries. Eh? Um, when we started, there was limited research on on this and limited information. Um, we just had a bit from other countries, but not really in depth, like this formative research had uh, provided it. The data collection was done in uh, November 2016, and um, in total, 96 people uh, were interviewed uh, 50 women, 28 adolescent girls, and 18 men participated in the study. 56 in the urban areas and 40 in the rural sites. Um, and uh, IPPF was uh, really the research partner in, in country. Um, our overarching aim was really to understand how women and girls in Fiji manage uh, menstruation. We, it's also important to note that we did this study also as a comparative analysis uh, in the Solomon Islands and PNG as well. Uh, but I'm speaking only on the Fiji context. Uh, and those are some of the other aims that we uh, tried to uh, um, actually uh, address in this uh, formative research. Eh? Uh, the methodology, we had uh, different uh, methodologies and we had, it, it was really qualitative uh, where the focus group discussions and interviews uh, were really done, eh? and with uh, key informant, uh, um, a lot of key informants. And um, really, um, we had uh, interviewed men as well, so we could also see the support mechanisms that they provided during this year. And uh, it was done in Vitilevu and Bonolevu. Uh, for those who don't know where Vitilevu is, you are in Vitilevu <laughs> and Bonolevu. It's across from Vitilevu. <laughs> Uh, we did a lot of uh, discussions and also in local languages as well. Um, and we had translators and uh, we, where possible we were able to speak in English and uh, where not uh, we would use the vernacular and then transcribe it. Eh? Um, and the research was approved by the Fiji National Health Research and Ethics Review Committee and the Fiji Ministry of Education, Heritage and Arts. Some of the challenges that we faced, uh, <coughs> knowledge, attitude and beliefs about menstruation. Um, there were generational gaps in the knowledge with younger people really understanding more because of uh, the education um, and as opposed to those, uh, the older generation. Yeah? Um, there was also the gaps in the charting cycle uh, from month to month and understanding fertility. Um, Teachers were not skilled in delivering the national curriculum, but they were really helpful and were really willing to do so. And then this can be an opportunity that uh, we can actually look at in terms of capacity building for our teachers. Yeah? Uh, in information needs of women and girls with disabilities were often overlooked. And uh, we not only saw this um, 
in menstruation, uh, menstrual hygiene, but in our work uh, in IPPF and as a broader, uh, we also see that people living with disabilities are often neglected in uh, sort of consultations. And uh, we, we hope to address this uh, going forward. Eh? Also beliefs, um, there were so many myths that we had to uh, address as well. Eh? And um, so some of them were really, really uh, funny. And, uh, and, when we had, and when we addressed them, then realization set in and then they were like, oh, okay. And that's, that's the beauty about information and awareness and education. Eh? And then the realization that comes after that, and then it's moving to behavior change, which we hope to do. Um, okay, and uh, sorry, one more bit. Also, the access to wash facilities, eh? and um, really, uh, barriers for girls and women with disability again came out really uh, uh, as a highlight of this as well. Eh? in terms of, uh, especially in the public facilities as well. And there is no regard uh, for accommodating uh, people living with disabilities, which should be something that should be approved, uh, improved, uh, rather. Women using public toilets uh, at work face greater challenges uh, and may not have 24-7 uh, facilities. Yeah? And um, sometimes this can be access and really simple things like a well-lit area. So um, these are some of the things that uh, the team uh, came up with as well eh? and found. Also a professional disposal service, uh, not at scale across the schools and workplaces. You know, like um, it's not really uh, uniform in places. Eh? In workplaces, there would be a professional service. Um, and in most uh, sorry, organized uh, areas, whereas in the public convenience areas, there's just no uh, proper disposal materials. Uh, also water supply uh, can also be a problem in the rural areas as the, the team found. Access to effective materials to manage menstruation, we looked at the cost barrier and we looked at uh, the big differences between the rural and the urban areas in terms of the availability of products as well. It really varied uh, hugely. And uh, I've just um, included their quote um, about uh, uh, that happened uh, that was from the focus group discussions in the urban areas and a girl from a school in the urban area and talking about how they are teased and even bribed uh, and saying that they if uh, they do not give them money they will tell everyone what's in their bag and this can be really embarrassing uh, I can attest to that um, when I was in school, uh, I probably came across a few incidences like that. Okay, some of the findings, uh, lack of basic knowledge uh, of uh, like the charting cycle, yeah. I've, uh, yeah, that's just, and just, uh, yeah, that's just a summary of the findings, yeah. But then I have actually included um, a quote from a focus group discussion in the men in the urban areas where he says uh, that uh, when my daughter's Francis is near, I went to buy plenty of packets uh, for her so she could uh, take some to school as well. And he did not want her to borrow and have none at all. And like I said, I can attest and relate to that. I had four elder sisters who used to send me to the shop uh, and uh, to go and buy 
the sanitary pads. Um, in the beginning, it became it was embarrassing, and after that, it became normal for me. So you know, and that's what I'm saying. The the amount of men that are hugely involved in this, you know, and and would like to also acknowledge <coughs> the men, uh, men's participation, and I say that it's very important that they have that support mechanisms also for uh, women. Okay, the impacts of poor MHM, uh, menstrual hygiene management, uh, really on participation, work, school, and the broader community. Um, what we've uh, heard is, and uh, what we found out is that um, sometimes uh, girls don't go to school uh, because they have the fear of leakages as well, and then embarrassment uh, that is caused. Uh, a few times we've experienced that in school as well, and uh, I know that it wasn't handled very well at that time. Uh, I wish I had known more about MHM at that uh, time uh, to be more supportive. Yeah? And I think, uh, like I mentioned, with uh, the information and the knowledge that is disseminated to everyone, and if it is done widely, uh, we would have uh, a lot of people that would be more comfortable with it. Yeah? Um, and also, depending on the beliefs, uh, um, also the restriction. Yeah? Um, there was a huge breakthrough during... Uh, the Olympics, I think, when uh, this Chinese swimmer uh, participated in um, in the diving contest with uh, while she had a menstruation, and then that's all swimming, and that was good, and, and that was really uh, good publicity for MHM, yeah? and uh, we wish to have more uh, people that would actually come forward and tell this story like that, so that uh, they would uh, the myths and all would be actually yeah dispelled. Yeah? Negative emotional impact, uh, really around the stigma, embarrassment, uh, emotional distress from teasing, uh, really feeling excluded um, in, term, in some instances and cases uh, due to uh, traditional beliefs, some people were excluded and uh, really isolated during the, the, the time of menstruation and uh, this was made uh, clear during the research. Um, Embarrassment if having to bath in the river as well was something that came up as well. Some of the possible solutions, uh, education and awareness, uh, really targeting school-age uh, girls and boys yeah, as well as both adult men and women and really giving them uh, the information as I have continually said during this presentation. Uh, I think that's you know, of extreme importance. Yeah? and trying to address the myths and beliefs uh, that are prevailing in the community. Also intergenerational dialogue with, between the older generation and the younger generation, exchange of information. Uh, we have that uh, culture of the Talano and uh, storytelling and if that can be incorporated into some of this with the correct information and uh, really that would help. And really accessible uh, uh, for girls and women, eh? accessibility uh, for girls and women with disability and how we can address that and really educating uh, our, maybe our town councils, those who are in charge of the public conveniences and all the all these facilities so that they will be able to actually cater for people living with disabilities as well. Eh? Uh, absorbent materials, um, some of the solutions to that was really the supply and quality of the commercial products, we we saw that um, in the urban areas, it was there was a whole range of uh, products, 
and they do they would uh, really range from the very expensive to the very cheap whereas in the rural areas most of the the ones that were available were the really cheap ones uh, the cheap brands and that um, and that is really because of uh, um, first of all the geographic locations and also uh, been transporting and the cost of it as well uh, also for emergency access in schools and workplaces uh, that is very important and really looking at uh, piloting local uh, alternatives like reusables as well eh? uh, among uh, especially our market vendors as well um, and well, the water and sanitation facilities, really exploring different options and facilitating the clean cleanliness of the, the toilets and the public conveniences that uh, we use and to increase the availability of the toilet paper and we, we found that that, that that was lacking in some of the schools even. And um, all this really needs to go with an awareness program like we like I had stressed uh, to the relevant officials eh? otherwise nothing's going to be done some of the recommendations are uh, well really strengthening that uh, government leadership and uh, commitment with the Ministry of Education really looking at the capacity building of our teachers who are really really willing to help and they are so keen to help our students. Uh, but just the lack of uh, information and knowledge and training in the area that they feel, uh, they don't feel that confident in actually delivering the curriculum as well. Eh? Improving uh, the access to high quality information about menstruation um, and uh, working across the board eh, with uh, government and NGOs and uh, other partners. Um, we have a good program that's. Uh, going on which is the WASH program uh, that we can also build on and really work uh, with and we hope that we can take that forward as well. Eh? Really improving the affordability and availability and access of the menstrual hygiene products eh? and really the upgrading of our sanitation and water facilities and hygiene facilities in uh, I think in in all areas as well. Eh? We, when we say rural and urban sometimes you forget that some of the urban centers also uh, don't have facilities that are up to the standard as well uh, and we neglect that you know and really cutting across the board and looking at uh, at least a ba basic minimum standard of hygiene facilities and water and sanitation what is needed uh, well I think uh, well we thought we thought that uh, accurate and accessible information on menstrual hygiene needs to be there uh, but this can we understand that this can be difficult with uh, social constructs in place, uh, with all the tradition, culture, religious beliefs as well. Eh? Uh, but uh, we we think we think that it's uh, to actually have a basic minimum for for to enable women to actually practice good menstrual hygiene. We need to actually provide them with the facilities to do so. Um, and also the awareness as well and the education. Uh, acknowledging again uh, our, our other partners in well and our study participants and the research team. And that's the research team. Um, we have Dr. Lisa Notoli, the third from the left, uh, who is the lead uh, researcher in this uh, paper. And uh, having said that, uh, you would notice that um, 
I am presenting on behalf of Dr. Lisa and that's the research team with IPPF uh, research team. And Chelsea is uh, third from right, from water aid. And uh, because I'm presenting on behalf of Lisa, uh, Dr. Lisa Nutoli, I would appreciate if you ask me only easy questions. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Please join me in thanking Michael for this very interesting presentation. Um, I'm not um, surprised at all that it's a man speaking about menstrual hygiene because I think it's very important to break down all the stereotypes and everyone should be talking about it. I just go back to oops, to this picture um, and say that the companies that make these products, they're owned mostly by men. So they're profiting from something that is essentially a, a women's reproductive health you know, um, issue. So you know, it's everybody's business to be talking about it. Thank you very much to the three speakers. Um, now to you, um, audience. Um, so the way this is going to run is we have a little bit more than uh, 30 minutes to um, have an interactive discussion with um, uh, the uh, three presenters or, or you know, all the, the contributors to the three presentations. And um, so if you can put your hand up and um, if you're selected, then please say your name, where you're from, and for which um, uh, presentation is your question for. And we'll do this in rounds of uh, three. So who'd like to go first? Yes. Hi, I'm Mele from Future Nova, but um, I'm studying. I'm currently studying at at the Australian National University. So my question is with regards to the first um, presentation, and um, and I just wanted to ask whether there's been any experience in involving um, the youth in in policy deliberations, because um, often they're not young, young people become disillusioned um, because they, they, their voices aren't heard, um, which doesn't mean that they don't have an interest in a lot of, um, they don't, they, doesn't mean that there's no um, disinterest in policy making. So I wonder whether it is common to involve youth in um, policy deliberations. Okay, thank you. Um, another question? Anyone? Yes? Okay. Um, it's, uh, my question is on my card. Sorry, distance formality. Um, my name is Karen Winterford. Yeah. I'm from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at University of Technology, Sydney. And um, yeah, thank you so much to all three speakers. That was um, very informative and, and stimulating. Um, my question is to the um, first speaker, to Shelley. And um, you know, as a as a woman in um, in Sydney, Australia, living and watching the news, I'm probably one of the few people that actually watch the news of a of a night. I quite enjoy it, and I get very entertained by the weatherman. He's like the highlight of my day, which is not it's pretty sad, but I do enjoy the weatherman. I think it's a very um, interesting task. Um, so I do watch the news, and I am um, disturbed as most 
um, people, good people are about um, violence against women. And in Australia, um, you know, on the news, um, and we know the statistics in Australia, but on the news, we hear, we hear stories of, of violence against women and, and also violence against children. Um, we know that the system, um, something isn't working in Australia. I don't know if it's a system or, you know, what it is. Our society is not, not working to, um, to support um, um, safety and security for all. And I was just sort of reflecting on, on you know, the system kind of approach in the Pacific. And I was thinking, okay, it's not really working in Australia. Um, you know, what what does this mean for the Pacific? And, and what, um, and also, also for other Pacific Islanders here, what does it mean for a, a Pacific solution, which is, um, you know, situated within good thousands of years of culture and, and, and respect and, and love, and, and what does that mean for a way of the future? So I'm just sort of, yeah, my question's around that, that system. Do we need a system or do we need something else? Thanks. Thank you. Uh, yes. Um, thank you, Nalini. Uh, I would just like to ask, uh, Two questions. If I can, you please introduce yourself. Okay. Sorry. My name is Tupovere from Fiji. Um, I'd like to ask two questions. I'll be very brief. My first question is directed to Mariani and um, Chris Roach. Um, you may have mentioned it, but I, I probably missed it when you said it. Um, that PLP um, provided this support, and now with the closure of that project, um, who is continuing the support to the coalition? Um, if you can just share that with us. Um, and the second question is directed to Miss um, Casey. I think the first presenter. Yes, um, you, you talked about uh, that intersection between, yeah, I, I'm very interested um, in Fiji's situation, um, is the launch of the referral network in Fiji on for victims and survivors on violence against women. Um, and if there's any information regarding Fiji's um, initiative or efforts in the area of uh, referral with children, and how that is um, progressing, if at all, in, in, in our country. So those are the two questions, Nalini. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I'd like to go first with the responses. Uh, Shelley, uh, you have three questions. I've got three. Maybe you'll start, yes. Still talking to be fat in Tonga and the Pacific Union support units. There's still that negotiation, but the coalition is still continuing without without the funds. Is still meeting. They're still doing things. But um, yeah, just to answer the question, it's still currently under negotiation. Thank you. So to the team that made the first presentation. question on the youth. I'm sorry, my voice is not uh, really right, but I'll try. 
Uh, okay, so um, UNICEF in general does involve youth in policy deliberation. For example, with regard to uh, the child protection bill and policy, um, there's been consultations with youth in Vanuatu, Salmon, uh, Kiribati, and uh, Fiji. Uh, since the question was quite uh, uh, general, other than even besides child protection, UNICEF does involve youth in policy um, deliberation. Uh, for example, in some countries there is a youth parliament. I'd like to ask my colleague uh, Amy if she has something to add on this, on youth participation. Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, UNICEF being the organization working, working with children, um, of course we try to include the, the inputs from children, those under 18, as well as young people. Sometimes in the Pacific, I think, when we are talking about youth, it can be people who are very old. In some countries, up to 35 years of age. So I always try to specify what group of young people we're, we're talking about and getting inputs from. But I think UNICEF and other UN agencies do work very, very hard to get inputs uh, from young people, children, and youth. Um, I'll take the next question, which related to. Oh, sorry, did you want to come on up? Thanks, Shelley. I think with um, Australia, the Pacific Women Program in particular, there is an exciting piece of work that we are uh, progressing to take into account the issues raised by youth and to be inclusive of them. I think my colleague Tara is here with better. Uh, position to comment on it. It's called the Pacific Girl Program. We had an excellent uh, regional meeting that was uh, held in Fiji that brought in youth from across the Pacific and uh, the private <coughs> countries in particular. Uh, and then there's going to be a, a program that's going to be developed to address this going forward. Uh, also, in the past, I think Australia has supported uh, the youth programs uh, that UNICEF has been running, in particular around uh, the youth parliaments that they have held as well. There's also been um, funding and support that has gone to the Pacific Youth Council uh, at SPC, and that uh, the Pacific Leadership Program has also been working with. So there's a, there's a range of things that's, that's out there. Of course, we, we can do more, that's for sure. Uh, with respect to the question about having child protection systems and what that might mean in the Pacific, um, I think the, the starting point for the work that UNICEF and DFAT have been doing with governments in the Pacific is acknowledging that cutting and pasting systems models from other countries, and in particular the models from Australia, New Zealand, and Western countries, which are acknowledged to be failing in those countries, um, is not an appropriate starting point. Um, and when we've been talking about child protection systems in the Pacific, it's a, it, within the acknowledgement that that doesn't necessarily mean a large bureaucratic you know, machine um, to deal with children and families' issues. And the starting point for our discussions with all governments is you know, what's happening on the ground now? Who do children and families turn to for help um, you know, at the community level? Who's making decisions about what happens to children who need protection? And how do we work with those people um, so that they're making better decisions and that they're thinking more holistically about 
the child's well-being and, and protection rather than just say issues of compensation and then making sure they know and are well connected to the formal services. So if you can't handle at the community level, who do you call and how? And how do we make sure that children who do need those more formal services that are often only available in the capital cities are able to access them? So we're looking at, you know, the concept of system is quite loose um, and it's not necessarily, it's recognizing that the capacity for a, a formal um, bureaucratic response, and that, you know, machine is not necessarily feasible in most Pacific countries, and we need to be flexible and work from the ground up. Um, specific to Fiji, um, DFAT um, and UNICEF are working um, at how to ensure better co uh, collaboration in terms of the referral pathways for women and children. So here in Fiji, you have the new referral pathway for uh, violence against women. And there's also the um, interagency guidelines on child abuse and neglect, which present those, those as, if you go back to the slide which I saw earlier, they do reflect those two different pathways, you know, for how you would deal with adult women and then how you would deal with children, with the Department of Social Welfare very much at the center for, under the um, interagency guidelines on abuse and neglect for dealing with children's cases. Um, but we do recognize as those protocols are being rolled out, that there's need for greater collaboration for the intersection cases where mom and child are at risk. Um, so we're hoping in the coming um, months and years to support um, some greater discussion on those, those tricky cases where uh, both women and children's needs need to be addressed and there needs to be better collaboration between the two networks, making sure that we look holistically at the safety of, not, of children, uh, mothers and their children. Thank you. Madam, uh, on your question about do we need a system or something else, we, we need both, I would say. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are working on the system at the formal level. Alongside, I think, development uh, practitioners and partners are recognizing that there has to be work, uh, complementary work occurring at various uh, spheres. One is the faith-based approaches. Uh, not only for violence against women, but also for violence against children. Um, there is programming that is working in this particular area. Uh, given that you know 90% or even more of the communities in the Pacific are you know tend to be church-based or faith-based communities, the first responders tend to be the faith-based leaders. There are also community-based approaches that are being uh, utilized across the, the board. Uh, UNICEF it's Self is uh, looking at community facilitation packages. There are also packages uh, as well that are being used around, you know, respectful relationships, um, bullying in schools, etc. So recognizing that, and then there's uh, school-based curricular interventions. For a long time, it's been recognized that you know we've got to start earlier. Uh, the earlier, the better. Right down at the kindy level. So there are initiatives um, in addressing and incorporating and updating school curricula to address some of these issues. And an exciting one is the partnership that DFAT has with the European Union and the UN Women and SPC, RRRT and Forum. It's called the Pacific Partnerships to End Violence Against Women. Uh, and the, the SPC, RRRT side of it is going to look at school curricula, developing school curricula to address some of these uh, harmful gender norms. On, um, and I think I see my friend Semaima there as well, and she can talk about the work that we are going to be doing in sports as well and the work that has gone in as well. So recognizing that there are uh, these fears and these communities that we can work alongside to address these issues. 
on the referral uh, network uh, in Fiji for violence against children. Actually, we started this. Ella is here from social welfare. She can talk more about this. But uh, we started this well before the referral protocol <coughs> on violence against women. Uh, and somehow uh, we need to, to to revisit that and strengthen that and uh, and get that rolling now that we have the referral protocols for the violence against women. Thank you. Any of those uh, mentioned would like to say anything? Let's put you on the spot. <laughs> no? Okay. Um, a second round of questions. Yes. Hi, I'm uh, Alan from SPC. I guess I'm just picking up on the point that was raised about donors bringing money to the table and often uh, influencing priorities or in some cases sometimes subverting systems and institutions. So I guess I had a question for Marianne and Chris around how, what sort of mechanisms or processes they use to maintain that balance of ensuring that ownership was driven by the coalition while ensuring that uh, donor priorities did not uh, subvert the Thanks. Thank you. Uh, another question? Yes. Hi, um, Lucy from the Vanuatu Skills Partnership. My question, I think, follows on from yours a little bit, and it's for Mariani and Chris. Um, you mentioned that the role of PLP, um, I love this idea of creating space, like, <coughs> that's what you're here to do, and you said that identifying critical entry points within timing is really important, and then therefore that discretionary funding or flexible funding is, you know, is, is an important part to make sure things can move. It's a bit of an innovative idea sometimes for our government partners and as well as donors, as you mentioned. So yeah, I guess to follow on from that, how can we as development practitioners advocate for that? Because um, in Vanuatu Skills Partnership, we think that's a really effective and wonderful approach. Um, yeah, if you could just give us some ideas and tips. Thank you. Uh, next question, the third question in this round. Yes, thank you. <coughs> I'm Absalome from the Methodist Church in Fiji. There is a reference in probably running right, right across the presentations about uh, community-based uh, approaches. Uh, there's some suggestion as well about <coughs> community organizations that these may be involved in. I just want to thank the presenters for the details that we received. Just wondering whether there was some work on, on how church organizations, faith organizations, and how their interventions could be harnessed through partnerships. I'm not really sure if there was some work on this. Thank you. Okay, so the first two questions go to the team, and the third question is for everyone. So, nice to see you, Alan. Um, I think you know, you're asking a question you know the answer to. So, good, good, to, hear, good to hear what you have to say. Um, I mean, I think that these 14 programs, what they realized also, because they're working in sensitive spaces, including the CEDAW example, is that the ability that if local actors that were working on sensitive issues were seen to be associated with outside actors, that could undermine their legitimacy locally. 
And therefore, it wasn't just about the money and the rest of it, it was being really sensitive to not undermining the legitimacy of local actors. And I think by taking an analysis that isn't just about the money, it's about the processes by which social change evolves, then, then the money may or may not play a key role, but you're starting from a different place. And I think that leads on to the kind of second question about money, is that the programs we looked at are DFAT-funded programs, they're NGO programs, they're DFID-funded programs. Donors can do this, um, and they can set up discretionary pots of money, but clearly there needs to be a good argument made, and I think this is where I think research programs like our program and, and the work of Dan Homing that I was talking about, there's a growing set of evidence now that those ways of working are more effective, particularly in volatile contexts and on programs that are working in compl on complex issues where relationships, norms, and the rest of it are in place. If you're delivering a bridge um, or the mail, you need a different system. Um, so I think that's it's become, that's becoming clearer. I think, and you're seeing designs now that are more like that. The problem is, is that some people have got so used to working in a certain way that they actually don't know what to do. So the designs are quite good, but how do you do this stuff? And that's it's a craft that takes experience and the rest of it. It's not a it's not for me. It's not a business. It's not an industry. It's a craft that needs support and nurturing and mentoring. So, I mean, I think part of it is that, but donors can do this, but the case needs to be made and the evidence needs to be brought together, and yes, NGOs and others need to, they need to create coalition. So it's an art, <laughs> not a science. <laughs> <laughs> and anything around the third question? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Shelley, the church? Yes. Okay. Um, I think across the Pacific, the churches and faith-based organizations have really been um, seen as, as central to the child protection system work that's being done um, in you know throughout the Pacific. Our church leaders are definitely opinion leaders, um, and people who we've been that we've been engaging with and encouraging our government counterparts to engage with around child protection issues uh, and child protection messaging. Um, in, in a lot of countries, they're also the course, key service providers at the community level. And if we think about countries like Vanuatu and Solomon Islands in particular, the extent to which services exist for children and families in a lot of communities, um, it's provided by church, church the churches of faith-based organizations. And they're the ones with the networks of people you know, down to the village level, whether it's women's, you know, women's leaders, women's groups, pastors, priests, um, or interacting every day with children and families. And they tend to be that first port of call I spoke about earlier. So when you ask, who do you go to for help? It's very often people from the church. Um, so we've very much seen um, churches and church uh, faith-based organizations and church leaders as a key part of all of the work um, that we're doing and as central to those community coalitions, community networks that we're trying to establish to improve um, well-being and protection of children. Um, and engaging them actively both in prevention activities um, and also in the response process. Um, because if a child needs counseling, if a child needs a place, safe place to stay, most often it's the church um, that communities look to to help out. Thank you, Shelley. I think um, two exciting pieces of work that you know, Australia has been proud to fund is uh, 
an initiative with the House of Sarah, Anglican uh, Church, Diocese of Polynesia, uh, led by Reverend Serima Lomaloma, who's also a advisory board member for Pacific Women Shaping Pacific Development, uh, looking at preventative strategies, looking at um, uh, enhancing uh, leadership uh, of women in the church, looking at um, dialogue and discussion, opening it up all the more, and awareness raising, as well as community organizing around uh, violence against women. Uh, the other one that uh, we are funding or have been funding for some time is uh, work with Uniting World, uh, and they have been working in Kiribati and Tonga and Fiji, uh, and even in Vanuatu and, and BNG. Uh, there are various streams of work there. Um, some of you may be aware that you know we have um, specific theologians like Reverend Cliff Burt, who's uh, associated with the Methodist Church, um, and his gender theology framework. <coughs> and they have been dialogues and discussions, taking this framework out and sort of re-educating minds, etc., looking at interpretations of uh, Bible passages that have been used to justify any violence against <coughs> women and children. So revisiting those, repackaging those, and, and having discussions and getting churches to really uh, adopt some policies to look at addressing it. Uh, not only that, but alongside about uh, looking at gender inequalities within the hierarchy of the churches, how can women have a voice in this? What are the gender policies that churches can develop alongside? And also a review of theological education and curricula in particular across uh, you know, prominent uh, seminaries and uh, Bible colleges in the mm -hmm. South Pacific. So these are some of the approaches that we're looking at. On violence against children too, it's good to get um, strong, you know, public profiled church leaders that can be a voice. I think on violence against children, we've had like the Reverend James Bugwans, etc., that have been a good voice, strong voice for children and women's issues, mm -hmm. the writings that go on in papers. So, there, there is a range of engagement. Of course, more is needed. We, we recognize that, and we will be very open um, to having more discussions with other faith-based groups. For, as part of the 16 days of activism, there was an, an interesting media campaign that, that was funded that involved not only uh, the Christian communities, but also the Hindu and, and the Muslim communities coming out with a uh, a singular message that you know violence against women is is a sin, really, and th that was really quite powerful. Uh, if you went to the cinema last year during the 16 days of activism, it was played there. It was on television. It, it was quite powerful, and uh, so during these sort of uh, campaign periods uh, is a wonderful time of getting uh, interfaith dialogue happening and all communities talking about these issues and addressing it. Thank you, Michael. Um, just uh, in, uh, from our perspective, uh, really the church plays a key role in uh, menstrual hygiene management. And uh, really when we went into the communities, the, the, the gatekeepers, the church were also part of the, uh, the gatekeepers that we had identified. Eh? And the role that they played, uh, basically because of the beliefs uh, that uh, that was linked to menstrual hygiene as well uh, during our research as well. Eh? And we actually found uh, people quoting from the Bible uh, and 
and also the other religions. It's really cross-cutting in terms of the different beliefs uh, amongst the religions. Eh? And that's why I think um, your point is really important, why we need to inform uh, the different religious bodies in terms of the dissemination of information <coughs> and really the discussion that we can have in terms of nurturing uh, the, the information into the society as well and the community. Okay, Marianne Wavers, um, she's presented about it. Okay, so I think we have um, maybe time for one more question, one last question. Is this one burning one? Yes. Yeah, good day everyone. Uh, come on, Tarawa from the Alpharos. <coughs> I work for the Labour Sending Unit, Ministry of Employment. Uh, my question is uh, for the two, Shelley and uh, Marianne's group. Uh, Currently, we are sending 20, uh, a lot of workers down to Australia and New Zealand, uh, both in the fruit picking and uh, hospitality. Uh, we are actually more, our numbers are more than the Fiji teams, or yay. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, yeah, having said that, unfortunately, people are, are not looking at the impacts on the family. Uh, we are facing a lot of uh, divorce, uh, fatherless kids, and motherless. So, uh, <clears throat> I'm blessed I'm in, in the right room, so I'm learning a lot of stuff. So if you have any uh, methods or any strategy that you have, or studies, on how we can actually collaborate or co-light co or co-with that word, coalition or something like that. <laughs> so we're just uh, having that, that issue at the moment. But it's not spoken about a lot, but everybody's just, uh, in the media talking about the successes on employment, addressing that employment. So, yeah, now just another one is just a comment on that. Uh, Michael Sabi, bro, you've empowered me. Uh, I'm going to be shopping for my wives and my daughters and sisters' stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you. Who would like to go first this time? Yes? Okay. I think mean, the only thing on the... I mean, there, I think there are lots of issues related to gender relations, social relations more broadly, that aren't being looked at very seriously within these programs. There's some work being done, and the ANU is doing some. But the focus is largely on the economics and the jobs at either end, and the income. But what is interesting, I think, that some work that's been done, particularly in New Zealand, has shown that the relationship that is built between the Pacific community and the local community is, is resulting in all sorts of good things as well in terms of those communities supporting each other, building social relationships over a much bigger uh, kind of um, uh, geographic area. So I think there needs to be more research on the social aspect at both ends, if you like, because I think it's a story that's really unclear at the moment. Yeah. <coughs> yes. Um, yeah, I think it's a very interesting point that you raised, and not something I think there's very much um, yeah, research or discussion of in the Pacific. Um, globally, we have seen the negative impact on children of um, that the mass migra migration of parents to work, and I think in particular the Philippines, for example, and China um, have done quite extensive studies on the impact of the, the left-behind children, yeah, who, are, who have a parent who's um, left the country long-term to work, and are left either you know with grandparents or with inappropriate care, um, but I don't know that it's something we've really focused on here in the Pacific. It's an in interesting issue to flag. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not so if I can just add the Pacific Labour Scheme just opened up, 
So we are moving into a lot of different sectors. Mm -hmm. So this is just a pilot program is just raising some of these issues that we can work together. Thank you. Okay. Um, did I see your hand somewhere in the corner here? No? Okay. Alright, any any last burning issue? Yes? Um, hi, my name is Hannah Pakula. I'm an undergraduate student at the AM And um, I have a question for whoever may have some thoughts on this. I'm really interested in that uh, the rate of change around these issues, especially with the broader things like behavioural change, cultural norms, um, and how those change. And um, I lie awake sometimes at night and I hope that in 50 years I'm not having the same conversations in rooms like this. So I was wondering if you think that um, technology will have an impact in the areas that you're working in in any way, whether that means, for example, people having access to mobile phones so they have a better use of access to crisis services, anything like that, um, or perhaps in the menstrual area with new technologies around reusable um, menstrual sanitary products. Um, how do you see transformation from technology? Thank you. Okay, who would like to go first? Yes, Chris. So, uh, just to refer to some other research, I mean, we worked with some guys at uh, the USP uh, on digital feminism and the way that digital feminism is creating a different form of space for um, <coughs> activism, particularly for those people who are excluded from formal political spaces. So, I think there's potential there. But I think the other piece of work that, uh, that Jonathan Fox in the States has done on social accountability and technology and how citizens can hold governments to account more is really interesting because it's guess the technology is not enough. You need the mobilization and then the technology can play a role. But if you think that technology is going to solve a political problem in that way, there's no evidence that it does. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, technology can play... Uh, both roles, uh, both a positive and a negative role, especially in uh, issues like this in menstrual hygiene, where we're able to actually get uh, the message across, but it needs to be filtered uh, for the correct message and the correct messaging that uh, is getting across it. Because um, what we don't have is really the ability to filter uh, information, especially on social media, and then what goes out uh, as a first uh, point of contact to our young people uh, is really sometimes not the correct message. So we just really need to actually filter that into a, and streamline it into a proper method of communication. Uh, behavior change we have seen uh, occur in a positive way over the years uh, around this area, but uh, it's one thing that's not really talked about and uh, really, uh, really looked at uh, very in-depth. But uh, we're also looking at uh, furthering this uh, sort of formative research and currently in conversation about reu reusable pads as well. And there's uh, actually a machine that is looking at making reusable pads from banana fibers. So that's one of the things that we're looking at at the moment and exploring it. And we have someone that we're talking with right now. Oh, okay. One of you. <laughs> on uh, technology, I think um, some of the helplines, <laughs> just the phone and ha having helpline numbers has been helping in the response to both violence against women and children, Fiji being a, a case in point, but it's important that the people on the other end of the line uh, 
appropriately skilled and trained to be able to address the issues that come uh, their way. Um, the men are now reaching out um, in numbers, wanting to change their behavior. Um, there aren't many providers working with them. Uh, and, and the know-how as well, so that we don't do any harm or more damage uh, to women and to children. So there are conversations that are co-occurring around working along with, uh, alongside with feminist-based principles, rights-based <coughs> approaches, and with organizations having uh, accountability to the feminist uh, movement, etc., to ensure that um, we are presenting uh, parallel or similar messages. Um, in terms of... Um, I just lost my train of thought. So yeah, so we've got that. Um, behavior change as a whole, it's, it's something we're struggling with and we recognize it's a complex issue, not only in the, in the social sector, but also in the health, like NCD crisis, for instance. I mean, how do you change people's dietary patterns and behavior? Um, substance uh, consumptions, tobacco, alcohol, all of those things. Um, there is research that's out there. I think there's, there's more that needs to be done to really understand it. Uh, certainly in terms of our response to these two issues on children and women, the earlier we start and the younger the audience for us that we work with, um, that is one way certainly of helping to prevent these things in the epidemic that there is at the moment. Okay, so with that, I'm going to close the uh, panel. Um, I just would like to say that um, as part of the feminist movement, um, uh, we strongly believe that any analysis around gender needs to have the interlinkages and interse intersectionality lens to it to properly understand what are all the elements of what you raised in terms of employment, you know, how does that intersect with health, with poverty, with location, with, you know, every other aspect? Because as I said in my opening line, uh, we don't live singular lives. We have very, very intersecting lives. So I thank all the audience members for being such, uh, you know, an engaging audience and um, listening intently to the three very fabulous um, presentations. Thank the presenters and all the contributors to that. And um, I shall not hold you any longer Please enjoy your lunch. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.